Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block, politics, perspectives, and players. Recent polls show that the election campaign is still a very tight race, and the battle in Quebec, the greater Toronto area, and the lower mainland of B.C. continues. Meanwhile, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been campaigning hard in British Columbia, trying to hang on to his party's 12 seats in that province. Singh hit a leadership high with his response to the Trudeau blackface controversy, but it doesn't seem to be doing much for his numbers in the polls. Late last week, I caught up with Mr. Singh on Vancouver Island to discuss the fallout of those images and his pitch to be the next Prime Minister of Canada. Here's that conversation. Jagmeet Singh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're sitting here in a coffee shop and people all across Canada have been talking about race in this election in a way that we haven't previously. How big of a role do you think race is playing in this election and how does it affect you? So I think it's, it's come to light because of what we've seen with Mr. Trudeau. So certainly it's come to light. And I think there's a really good opportunity for us to have a really honest conversation. Racism is something that exists in Canada we're certainly not like the states, but we're not also some sort of paradise where there is no systemic barriers. There are. And I think it's important for us to say, well, what are we going to do about it? And that's why I'm committing to some real changes. Things like ending carding at the federal level, making sure we address historic injustices like um, having amnesty for those who've been charged with marijuana possession, possession, uh, possession charges. So there's things we can do to ensure that we make investments in dealing with housing and health care taking into consideration that those who face barriers will be the ones that benefit most from changes to those systems. You had this moment, and I'm sure it was not a moment you ever wanted, but it was thrust upon you on the campaign trail when the images and video of Justin Trudeau in blackface and brownface came out, and you could tell it was so raw and so emotional for you, and everyone across the partisan perspective said that was a moment of great leadership, but also a moment of great personal pain for you. Justin Trudeau called you to apologize. What did he say? Well, I, I said I was going to keep it private, and so uh, I don't want to disclose that. But for me, what was unique about um, that moment was I wasn't actually thinking about myself. Because while racism was hard for me, I was always able to defend myself. So it wasn't as hurtful to me as it was to others. It was something that still, I have pain from it. But because I could defend myself, it, it didn't have the same impact, but it was when a friend reached out to me and shared with me a really personal story. He was a dear friend I've known for a long time, almost 20 years, and he never shared the story with anyone. And he shared with me on that, on that, that night. And after reading that story and, and hearing from him, it, um, it did something to me. It just made me really think about how much it has impacted people who couldn't defend themselves. And I thought about that, but his story really gave light to that. Do you think that Mr. Trudeau's apology to you was sincere? Um, I, I don't think the apology to me matters in the sense of it's about what Canadians are going to decide and how they were hurt by it. Uh, I appreciate the gesture and uh, I said very clearly I didn't want to be a part of a, a checklist that he completed certain steps and so I didn't want to be a part of that. I really believe that to really remedy the pain, we need to see some commitments to policies, like addressing the fact that you know, black, indigenous, and people of color are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, or finding ways to really get at the root causes that create unequal hiring. So those are things, those commitments, I think, would be a real way to remedy the pain of what a lot of people felt after reliving 
a lived experience of being made fun of, maybe physically being hurt, feeling uh, violence or insults, those, those pain, painful moments that came back when seeing those images, I think that's the only way really is to, is to address the people that were hurt. Does the fact that he hasn't fully disclosed what he was doing in that blackface video impact on how sincerely you view the apology? I think the not being open about what happened is just creating more questions. And I think it's fair that Canadians are asking these questions. I've got a lot of people asking me, you know, who is the real Mr. Trudeau? Or, or raising this question, they saw one apology that had a certain tone, and then a second apology that had a very different tone. And then not really disclosing all the details about why it happened and when it happened, what was the purpose. All these things kind of help show a pattern of behavior of a very different Mr. Trudeau in public and a very distant, different Mr. Trudeau in private. And in private, it seems to make light of people's challenges, make decisions that help those at the very top. And in public, he seems to talk a certain nice talk about pretty words and maybe empty promises. What was his tone like when he spoke to you? So with respect to the conversation, I appreciate uh, you're pushing on it, but I, I said I would keep it private because I didn't want that conversation or anything about it to be used by Mr. Trudeau or, or the Liberal Party as a part of their kind of checklist of steps. So I didn't want to disclose anything on that. You are the only racialized party leader in Canada. You wear a turban. You're also campaigning in Quebec. Bill 21 there. It, obviously very, very controversial and you couldn't do your job in Quebec. Why won't you commit to fighting that bill if you become Prime Minister? Well, there's a couple of things. First off, there's a court challenge that's going on and I think that court challenge is very important and I support it uh, and it's, it's something that should not be interfered with and I don't want to jeopardize that court case in any way with uh, any sort of comments that I might make about that court case. I, I do recognize there's jurisdiction but that court case is challenging the fact that there's a very discriminatory law. What I'm doing is focusing in on one being in Quebec and saying, hey, I'm someone that wears a beard and turban that believes firmly in the rights of women, the rights of women to have access to abortions, the right to choose, that believes in same-sex marriage, that believes in the importance of fighting the climate crisis and investing in lowering the cost of living, so fighting big telecoms companies and making sure our healthcare is there for us when we need it. It's a way of showing people in Quebec, hey, we can build a better world when we work together, not by dividing and separating people. But then why not say categorically, I will fight to have that bill struck down? Well, I'm fighting to, to, to win over the hearts and minds of people that supported a bill that I think is very divisive and very hurtful. And I don't want to jeopardize the court challenge that's going on right now. I've got a lot of legal training in the past, and I know it's important to keep that separate. So while that court case is being challenged, it's important that I don't interfere. What do you say to people like Tom Mulcair, former NDP leader, who've implied that you don't have the courage to do it, or that it's about seats? Uh, I've got the courage. I've taken on big, big challenges in my life, and I've never backed down. And I'm not afraid to fight when it comes to people's rights. Uh, I'm willing to fight the biggest and most powerful corporations in Canada, big pharma and big insurance, by saying we've got to put in place a pharmacare plan. I can absolutely fight uh, whenever people need me to. But I also know when it's important not to make it about me, but there's a core challenge that's very important, that's uh, very powerful, and it's people saying that this bill is wrong, and there are laws that protect against discrimination, and I want to see that, that, that process go ahead without any interference from me. You're also not a fan of big oil, along with big pharma <laughs> and some other big things. Trans Mountain Pipeline, obviously very controversial here in BC. Mm -hmm. You've said that you don't support it. That's correct. Would you support the building of any pipeline that would carry oil in Canada? 
So I've got three criteria to answer the question because I don't know about the project. It's uh, hypothetical, but I can tell you concretely what my criteria would be for a project to receive approval with a new democratic government. One, it would have to fit within the environmental regulations, protection of the environment, and also our plans to reduce emissions. So if that was satisfied, the second you know, very important criteria is that it has to create jobs for Canadians and be something that's not a resource ex extraction and a rip and ship type of project, one that creates value-added jobs. And finally, and most importantly, it has to be a bill that has the, the acceptance of the community, and whether that is because of Indigenous community rights or because of local communities, it has to be something that is in line with the vision of a community that's being impacted. What do you say to taxpayers, though, who say we've spent $4.5 billion on this pipeline? There are tens of thousands of jobs in Alberta on the line. How do you explain that to those people that you simply cancel that pipeline? Well, I look at the, the reality that people in the resource sectors are facing. You know, I've met hardworking people that no matter how hard they work, whether we're talking now or in the past 20, 30 years, they've worked really hard, and through no fault of their own, they go through busts and booms. And that's the reality of an economy based on one commodity. It is not predictable, it's not sustainable, and it's really unfair to workers. I want to say to those workers, I know there's better ways for us to make investments that will create a more stable workforce and a more stable uh, economy that creates jobs that are long-lasting. And that's where I would invest money, into the energy of the future, clean, renewable energy, into jobs that are long-lasting and sustainable, retrofitting all buildings and homes, looking at ways to create a sustainable, a sustainable uh, job force or job market where people aren't subject to the busts and booms of, of volatility globally. But for the foreseeable future, oil will still be extracted and there are still people who have jobs in that sector. Where do you transition them to in the meantime if you kill the pipelines? Well, this particular project is one where it's not a value-added type of project. It's not one where we're creating uh, value-added, refining jobs in Canada. It's one where we're just extracting a raw resource and shipping it out. And it's uncertain in terms of what markets are available for this diluted bitumen, which is a very difficult product to, to refine. I know that there's massive investment we can make in building infrastructure, putting the skill sets of those who are in construction, those who are in skilled trades to work to retrofit commercial buildings. There's so many buildings across this country that need to be retrofitted. That's thousands and thousands of jobs. Our plan to tackle the climate, climate crisis is one that will create 300,000 quality jobs at a minimum. So there's so many opportunities to use the talents and skills of those workers and resource sectors in jobs that will be more long-lasting. I have two back-to-back -back very quick yes-no questions sure. for you. Would you give Indigenous people a veto over national energy projects? I would respect them and give them dignity. Is that a veto? That would be a collaborative approach. But is it a veto? You know, it's, it's more working with communities to make sure that they get things done in a way that respects their authority and their autonomy. It would be in line with uh, prior and informed consent, so that's what I would do, absolutely. Is there a point where, as Prime Minister, you would determine a project to be in the national interest and run it through despite Indigenous uh, refusal to allow it to go across the line? I wouldn't contravene that principle, that free, prior, and informed consent. For me, that's, that's a, a guiding light and a guiding principle. So I'd make sure it's in line with that. And if it's not in line with that, then no, I wouldn't go ahead. What about provinces? Because you want to give them quite a bit of latitude, and that yes. fits with the Federation, but at some point there as well. Is it the job of the Prime Minister to say, look, this is in the national interest and the project is going ahead? It is important for us to recognize there are powers that we have at the Federation level and those powers remain and I don't want to change those powers that are constitutional. But I do know if we want to move ahead with projects, the track record of the past has shown that if there's not communities on side, if they're 
strongly opposed. If indigenous rights aren't respected, projects don't succeed. And we've seen them fail in the past. And I know from my experience working with and speaking with people who are investors and people who are in the business world, that you need predictability. And if there's a process that's in place that is not predictable, it's gonna be delayed but because of court challenges, it's just simply not a good way to go ahead. So what I'm proposing is a different way to go ahead where we find ways to ensure that there's incentives, supports in place, there's ways to ensure that we've got buy-in from local communities before we move ahead with a project. I believe that's the only way to successfully complete any project. We've talked a lot about the environment and you have some pretty big climate goals and we know that this is top of mind for a lot of Canadians. One of the goals that you've talked about is meeting the IPCC goals within 11 years, by 2030. That would take some pretty drastic change. What does that change look like? It means reimagining our economy where people feel like it's rigged against them and they feel like they're not getting ahead. They feel like they're working hard but not achieving the stability they want in their lives, the, the good life that they want to build for themselves, and saying we can build an economy that creates good shared prosperity for all and reduces our emission and uh, creates an ability for us to defend the planet. But how do you do that in terms of specific policies? Because you would have to crack down massively on emissions. Absolutely. So ending fossil fuel subsidies and reinvesting that money into clean renewable energy, investing in public trans transit and electrifying transportation. The three biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions are transportation, buildings, and energy production. On each of those fronts, massive investments for us to go to zero emissions, for us to reduce our emissions, and each of those is very achievable. But have, have you added up the actual numbers on that and seen if they get you to the goals? Because we haven't seen the math on it. We've seen the talk about policies, but not an actual breakdown of numbers. So our numbers get us almost all the way there. We've got a plan for massive transit investment, electrification of transportation, ending fossil fuel subsidies, investing in clean energy, retrofitting all homes. Uh, all these measures get us very close and as we develop more new technology and implement those technologies, we can get all the way there and beyond that. You've made some other pretty big promises that are very attractive to a lot of people, but potentially very expensive. National Pharmacare to be implemented very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. National Dental Care, support for people who are struggling to pay their rent. How many billion dollars in new spending are we looking at? Well, each of those promises, if you can put them up against last year's spending alone, they're less. Um, for example, our Pharmacare plan. Our Pharmacare plan is a $10 billion investment, and it's something that's going to save us money in the long run. And um, it's going to be something where we use the buying power of all of Canada to deliver the care that people need. We're the only country in the world that doesn't do it. People are struggling. We can do that for $10 billion. Our investments to help people out who are struggling because they can't afford a home and they can't afford rent as $1.8 billion, and that's going to help out 500,000 families. Our dental care program is about $856 million, less than a billion. That's going to give 4.3 million Canadians coverage. If you put that up against last year's choices alone, the Trudeau government spent $14 billion on a fall economic statement to give the wealthiest corporations the ability to buy corporate jets and limousines. They spent $4.5 billion on a pipeline, and they waived or forgave $6 billion in corporate loans one year alone of government spending from Mr. Trudeau to the wealthiest, most powerful corporations more than pays for our commitments. So you're saying you wouldn't have to raise taxes at all and you wouldn't have to cut anything other than those corporate welfare programs? Uh, what we would do is we'd raise revenue and we would make better choices. So I just showed... How would showed, you raise that revenue? Uh, I'll, I'll lay that out. So we've, I showed how I could pay for it just by making better choices, but we'd also raise revenue. So we would close the tax loopholes that allow for CEOs to get away with essentially not having to pay any fair share. That CEO stock option loophole 
would result in close to a billion dollars in revenue. We've uh, talked about closing all the tax loopholes that allow for offshore tax havens to exist. And the PBO points out that's $23 billion of lost revenue. We would also ask the wealthiest in Canada to pay 1% on their fortunes of over 20 million. That plan alone wouldn't impact very many Canadians, less than 0.1%, but it would ra raise as much as $70 billion over a series, a series of years as the PBO points out. So these are massive investments. We'd ask the wealthiest to pay a little bit more, a little higher in corporate tax rates. All this would more than pay for our commitments. In the past, you've appeared at rallies and marches that supported Sikh independence. Some people are wondering, what would a relationship with India look like under Prime Minister Jagmeet Singh? Well, I believe we have to have good relationships with everyone in the world, and India is included. Um, I believe in the right to self-determination, but I don't believe it's my position to weigh in on what the answer is. So I believe in anyone's right, whether it's in Scotland, whether it's in Spain, whether it's in... Um, any community that is making that decision is up to them to, to decide, but I support their right, whether it's in Quebec, it's their right to decide, I'm going to work towards creating unity in, in Canada. With the, India, I believe that there are some serious human rights violations that have to be called out. The treatment of the people of Kashmir is very problematic. The treatment of women and um, indigenous communities in India is something that we need to denounce, but we need to have good relationships with everyone. And I believe in open diplomacy, um, having transparency, and having conversations to build on international ties. One of those uh, events that you appeared at had a poster up of an extremist leader of the group that occupied the Golden Temple in 1984. What do you say to people who say they're concerned that you may support extremism? Uh, I say I reject violence. Uh, look at my life. Uh, I've been a lawyer and I've uh, been someone that's used the legal system to defend the rights of people, to defend the rights of those who don't have rights themselves. Uh, I'm an elected official who's used the democratic system as a way to organize to fight against big corporations, against pharmaceutical companies, against insurance companies. And uh, uh, the places that I've gone are no different from the Prime Minister Harper, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, those images are the exact same images that any Prime Minister has been with. So uh, it's, uh, it's an unfair ass assessment. I would say look at my life and, and my commitments. I'm someone that's always confronted hate with love and someone who believes very strongly in building a world where we come together and we unite as opposed to working on or focusing on divisions, we focus on those things that unite us. Which brings me to my final question on your leadership, because you're asking for Canadians for their vote to make you the Prime Minister. You've struggled at times as a new leader in the NDP to raise money. Sometimes it seemed like you didn't really know your policy files. You didn't make it to New Brunswick, which created a backlash. Obviously, those are all learning experiences. But what do you say to people who say, you know, I don't know if he was ready to be the leader of the NDP. Is he ready to be the leader of the country? I'd say I'm, I'm open to always learning, and I will always try to improve. And I think that's something that people can see in me as someone who's always willing to improve, and I continue to do that. But mostly, I think people have to ask themselves, who's in it for them? And really, the question should be, if someone's fighting for you, will your life be better? Or if someone's fighting to make life easier for the wealthiest? You know, that's really the question. In this election, it's clear to me that people are struggling, and the economy is rigged, and they're feeling like they're not getting ahead. And it's because governments in Ottawa have worked to maintain the wealth and power of those at the top, and that has hurt families. And families are paying the price. And I say to Canadians, if you want someone who's going to fight for you, not for the wealthiest, not for the people at the top, but for working class Canadians, for families that need help. I'm your man. I'm there for you. I'm going to fight for you. Mr. Singh, thank you for taking the time to join us on this very busy election day. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for watching. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson.